welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. This tape is produced in the spirit of Essays, 12 Steps to Carry the Message. Members of the Fellowship should bear in mind Essays' 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, and films and the use of this tape. Anonymity to this extent is actually the practice of genuine humility. Humility expressed by anonymity is the greatest safeguard that SA could ever have. Um, I'm a sexaholic. And uh, through the grace of God and the fellowship of this program, I've been sober since June of 1990. Um, discovering the principles, I, the principles, and I thought, to myself, gee, this is my core addiction. I, I didn't know twelve-step recovery. I, I, uh, until I had to face uh, face my sex addiction. It's a core addiction for me. Uh, but when I think about the principles, I think uh, I was most most uh, dramatically impacted by some things that, that I heard Royce say one time, and and it was like, uh, oh well, just just. Uh, Open up the a, a big book, and it's on page XXII or something like that, and it and it's and it's right there, and, and the program is simple, and there's the principles, and 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 it was find God, clean house, work with others, and it's it makes a lot of sense to me, and and it and it works in my own recovery, and and so. Uh, 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 with that, I want to uh, move on and introduce our, our speakers this morning. Uh, uh, I've had the, and I think uh, if Mary's okay, I'll let Mary go first. I had the privilege of meeting Mary just last night for the first time, and and I wasn't, and I was apprehensive. My attic sees a woman's name on the thing, and you know, two weeks ago, I'm saying, oh, you know, I'm, and and that's and that's me. I, I get intrigued. I get I'm affected, and uh, uh, and I was just so pleased to meet Mary. And what I saw, and it was this uh, incredible enthusiasm that she brought to the party. I was speaking with my roommate last night, and uh, and how interesting and exciting we are as addicts, as you know, as uh, as uh, as addicts, we are not. Normies, as I heard somebody say, we're full of the uh, a very we're interesting, we're colorful, and and that this enthusiasm that that uh, that Mary brings was a very welcome, warm thing that I experienced. And with that, Mary uh, Mary A from California. Thank you, Tom. And I am Mary S., and I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Mary. 
And um, this is a book that I kind of look through. I, I really didn't read it word for word. I'm not a word for word person because um, I'm not a detail person. But anyway, um, I think this book is really great. And I, I know it's out there on the literature table as well. And um, one of the things I thought about as far as discovering the principles um, that for me, and I, and I suspect, you know, it's the way with all of us in recovery, and not even in recovery, um, that the principles are buried somewhere inside. Um, and as I go through my recovery, um, my the principles are starting to surface or have been surfacing. And as my recovery grows, so do the principles that um, that I'm learning about within myself and learning to um, live by those principles. Um, and it's very hard sometimes to live by certain principles. I am a, I will tell you that I, I like to be in control and I like having power and um, there's a fine line for me between living by principles in the program, living by my own principles, and not being in control and power. Um, and what I thought I would do is just touch on each... How long do I have to speak, by the way? I don't want to owe... You know, my control and power, I could be here all morning. So. 15, <laughs> 15 minutes. Can you let me know in case... I get carried away. Thank you. See, then I just put it out of my hands, you know. And I'm willing to do that today. Um, about the 12 traditions, I have come to really respect and appreciate the 12 traditions. And I want to combine it with a group conscience because um, what, I, what I found in the L.A. area um, which is where I'm from, that when we're working on some issue, and, and, and me in particular, you know, I'm working on some issues, someone will say, well, what about the tradition? And what about a group conscience? And I just sometimes don't want to hear that because I really want it to go my way. And, if, and so I have to be very convincing. And if I'm not, it doesn't go my way. And I don't always like that. Um, but with the traditions and the group conscience, it keeps me on the straight and narrow. And um, I found that the traditions also go hand in hand with the 12 steps. Um, step one, tradition one, they seem to go hand in hand. And that was something else that, that I found and discovered as on this road of uh, happy destiny. And um, with the non, in, in this, I'm just going along with what was in the book, with the non-essay literature, again, um, I have a great deal of respect for various authors regarding sex addiction. And um, I would love to see, this was before, I would have loved to see all their literature on the table. Because I want you to know everything that I have learned from what I've read. And, um, but you know, as I've grown in my recovery, I think the main um, 
focus needs to be on the essay literature and the AA literature. There are so many things in there that I continue, you know, after almost six years in the program, I continue to discover in the literature, in just those two factions of the literature that is out there. And um, what I do on an individual basis is I share when, when asked or whatever, what I think about other types of literature and other authors and what, what they've written. And um, that's, that's my, as an individual, what I can do. But in the program, I really don't think that other literature should be displayed. I think it just should be essay and AA. These are just my personal thoughts. Um, <laughs> wow, hey, <laughs> I'm on the right track. <laughs> anyway, um, and, um, it's very interesting. There's publicity in the 12th step. Um, in the twelfth step, I should say. And um, interestingly enough, um, I have a partner who is an SA, a couple years more sobriety than I have. And uh, we started um, a radio program in LA. This was last year. Um, we just discovered we had this in common, and, and it was a dream. It's always been a dream of mine. And um, so we thought we would try a radio program. Um, and there were some, of course, opinions on that that didn't go along with, with us. But I am ever mindful of my essay anonymity. And I never identified myself as a sexaholic, per se, on the radio program. I did identify myself as a sex addict. That's just, for me, a part of me, a part of my life. Um, and in a way, it's just carrying the message. No one, you know, we, we went with the idea that we'll just put it out there and if you want what we have, you know, you can have that. Um, and just to let the public know that there is somewhere to go. And... The other thing that I um, really concentrated on was the fact not to just talk about one program. Um, if, if any programs were brought up, we referred to them as S programs. And, and the people who knew what they needed hopefully knew where to go to find what those programs were. If we mentioned S programs, or we mention one group, we would mention all of the groups that are involved in the S programs. Because um, I really want every, you know, I really want everybody out there to come to SA, because that's what saved me. But what I've learned in my recovery, and again, you know, these are the things that I'm discovering about myself, that I'm not a born-again person, and it's not healthy for me to be a born-again person. It's just healthy for me to share my experience, strength, and hope, and let people find their way. So if they end up in another S program besides this one, maybe that's where they're supposed to be. And if they're not, you know, they'll graduate. I did. I graduated along the way. So uh, I did find my way. Um, there's a part in, the, in this book about putting the essay name in, in the phone book. 
I do agree that that's okay, because that's actually how I found it. It's not intrusive, it's just there. It's very quiet and it's just there. And um, that's actually how I found the essay. And um, I, I will take a moment. How much time do I have? Oh, great, okay. Um, then what I'll do is share a little bit about the radio program. It's no longer on the air, so... Um, <laughs> we, we lasted about five months. We needed sponsors, and we just didn't get enough sponsors. Um, but we learned a great deal, and I think we put out a lot of wonderful information. The radio station did get a lot of calls, but no one really wanted to put forth any financial support, so it didn't go anywhere. But um, I think that we did share a lot of information. But it wasn't just on... Um, the S programs, it was covering a lot of topics. Um, there, were, there were people as guests on our program that spoke about gangs. We had um, one of John Bradshaw's people speaking about their recovery program. We had Patrick Carnes on. Um, we had a therapist about hypnosis on. Um, another therapist who does, who works with sex addicts. It was a really well-rounded um, program and always very careful not to just specifically name Sexaholics Anonymous and not to identify ourselves with SA. That, I think, is in keeping with the traditions. At least that was our feeling on it. Um, the other thing that I'm involved in right now um, in, in the LA area is the PIC committee, Public Information Committee. It seems that LA is looking at um, this idea about being out there in the media and, uh, and how to pass the message to the sexaholic who still suffers. This is a grave and important um, concept. Grave because there are people out there who need to know and um, so this committee, um, we are, there are at least seven of us and we encourage more participation. We're all from intergroup and um, we're, we're trying to find a healthy way of putting the message out there in the LA area about SA. Um, and I'm really pleased and, and um, honored to be a part of that group. Um, it's very tough. Uh, a couple weeks ago I came out of there um, just really wanting to control everything, you know. Um, and I can tell, you know, I have, I, when I, um, it, it's the lust coming up in, in the, and it comes up and I can just feel it in my body and um, and I just needed to talk to a few people and settle down, get to some meetings, and, and touch base with, with the program. That keeps me on track. And we do group conscience in there as well. Um, public information is, can be a real nightmare. I've seen some big mistakes about public information, and we're approaching it very slowly. It's almost like a birthing process, and um, 
I hope eventually when we get to a certain point um, that it will be as, as healthy as, as we're all hoping it's going to end up in a very healthy position. Um, the aspects that we're concerned about is if you put the information out to the public so it will reach the sexaholic who still suffers, um, being inundated with a whole lot of people who are maybe still toxic and coming into our groups, um, if the foundation in our group is not solid, then this will permeate the whole group. And instead of having a sober um, meeting, you may have a toxic meeting. And so we're really concentrating right now on building the foundation before we even get into the media part. Um, we have found through experience that this is what, what we need to do. It's very hard to do this. A lot of people just want to go out there and, you know, get on the radio and TV and talk about it. And as an individual, that's your, you know, that's your prerogative. But as an SA member, I don't think it's healthy for SA. And again, these are my opinions. Um, I have, I, I will say that I have been on a couple TV programs, one behind the screen and one on uh, Dr. Art Yuleen's show. That was short-lived, his show, but I was there. And <laughs> um, But I never, again, I never identified myself as an SA member. It's just not appropriate. But I am a sex addict, and it's okay for people to know that from time to time. Um, and I hope that that helped. I certainly had no, no intention to hurt anyone, you know, just to share my experience, strength, and hope. And um, I've done various things. You know, I've heard a lot of people say they've come in through um, the magazine articles in some of the, uh, the, the picture magazines and the pornographic magazines. And I have even done um, a couple interviews there. Again, just um, anonymously and not as an SA member, just an S member or an S addict. Um, and that's the way I think it should remain. At least it has for me. And I've been very careful to always say, when I tell you some of my story, I need to be very careful not to get into what they call euphoric recall. So when I'm sharing my story with someone, um, I always say that to keep myself in line. It's so important when, when I share not to allow my lust and, and, my, um, and my memories to take me down the other path. And um, I can also I stay very closely in touch with how my body's feeling because I can tell when I'm getting into that euphoric recall. Um, these are some of the principles um, addressed in this book, and um, everybody is entitled to how you know how they feel about these certain subjects. Um, and it's just my discovery for myself, you know, and that's all I can give to you. And I'm really learning, you know, just to put it out there and let the group conscience take it from there. And I don't, again, I don't always like that. Relationships and newcomers. Um, that's also in this little book. And um, how, how long do I have? Let's make sure. Oh, five minutes. Okay, great. 
Um, relationships and newcomers. Um, I am single, and I'm going on. Actually, Wednesday will be my sixth year birthday. And um, I did sober date for a year, year and a half in the program. And what I found out about that is I didn't have to have sex to be um, in a relationship. I didn't have to have sex to date. Uh, what I did have to have is, is, is a lot of meetings and a lot of places to work through whatever lust came up and what other issues came up. Um, and so I feel pretty good about telling newcomers it's okay. You know, you don't, you know, it's your choice, but I recommend that you try this, you know, without having sex in a relationship. We regret that there was about a two-minute portion of this tape that was erased. The end of Mary S.'s talk and the beginning of Scott F.'s talk. We will proceed with Scott F. Uh, already into his talk about 30 seconds. To this fellowship, uh, I knew I was a sex addict because of some of that other literature out there that uh, I had finally discovered and I had read and I had seen myself, uh, you know, in that description, in that book. At that point, I hadn't seen the essay big book. I hadn't been to a meeting. I didn't have one. But I knew I was a sex addict, you know. When I read the book, I knew it was like, you know, my heart skipped a beat. It was like, there it was, there I was. Uh, it was very, very powerful experience to realize that finally this is the problem. After all these years, you know, when I wondered, you know, this is the problem. And of course, it was immediately followed by, you should have known, you should have known. You know, alcoholism is wild in my family, uh, but uh, I didn't put two and two together. Anyway, when I came to my first SA meeting, you know, I knew that I was a sex addict, uh, but, <laughs> this is the but, uh, I only admitted, really, I knew it and I admitted it. And it was with uh, uh, the reluctance of a, uh, you know, of a cornered rat, you know. Yeah, okay, I did it. You know, I'm a sex addict. Uh, I walked in admitting I was a sex addict, but I had a chip on my shoulder. It was kind of like, yeah, I'm a sex addict, what are you going to do about it? You know, so that was not, I don't think, uh, much in the way of acceptance. Maybe in a in a very simple sense, uh, you know, in step one, it, we admitted we were powerless over lust. Uh, that was a very, very superficial step one uh, uh, level of awareness for me. Um, what helped me, I think, a great deal was at that first meeting uh, here in Portland, uh, this end of town, uh, about eight years ago. Uh, there were other people there. And I was accepted by those other people. You know, I fit. For the very first time in my life, I was able to talk somewhat superficially about, uh, you know, what I had done, something I had never admitted before, really. And I was able to, to say that in that meeting, and the people didn't get up and leave. You know, in, that, in their actions, in their acceptance of me, you know, I basically, uh, you know, was able to accept myself at a, at a little deeper level. And I also look at that, when I look back on it, really is those people were, it was really God's acceptance through those people, you know, of me. 
as a defective and weak and inadequate and frightened and severely addicted in our human being. Uh, and I was accepted. <coughs> Gradually, as I uh, uh, you know, participated in this fellowship and the programs, my uh, level of acceptance, I think, uh, uh, got a little stronger. I was less defensive, less afraid, more willing to talk. Uh, and something that helped me a great deal in those early days, uh, we didn't have a phone line. Uh, we didn't have many members. <laughs> We, uh, uh, you know, so when we were fielding inquiries or people were coming to our fellowship, we tended to have to kind of talk to them one on one, or we'd have to uh, have them call us at home or whatever. But I had an opportunity, really a privilege, to talk to people coming into the uh, uh, program, and that helped me too, because I could talk about me and I could I could share with them, and that deepened my level of uh, uh, of acceptance of me. I also realized along the way that. Um, that uh, uh, I had another hurdle uh, to set the stage for that or tell you about that. I, uh, uh, it was recommended to me that after I had been sober for a certain amount of time that I join another 12-step fellowship, in this case, you know, ACOA, Adult Children of Alcoholics. And I joined that fellowship. And I have actually I've gone to meetings with that fellowship for a little over seven years. But in the early days in that fellowship, I would introduce myself as an adult child, uh, and a recovering addict, you know. And I knew I'd come to a lot of those meetings and I'd still have my suit, my tie on, you know, and I'd look like some relatively straight businessman and I could tell people probably figured I had a little trouble with alcohol or prescription medications. And I felt very uncomfortable because I realized I wasn't able to be honest with these people. And I was afraid when they would, uh, you know, be friendly to me or they would hug me after the meeting that uh, uh, you know, my, my reaction was, well, you wouldn't do this if you knew. You know, it was more of my shame and my, uh, uh, and my fear. Anyway, uh, and I realized that at a certain point in time I wanted to tell these people, you know, and I used to worry about when I would do that. Well, after I'd been going to those meetings for about a year, I re uh, it just kind of happened. You know, without me planning it or doing anything, it just kind of happened that I identified myself as a sexual addict. I did not tell my story, you know, and I, to this date I don't tell my story, but uh, all of a sudden I was able to say that I'm an adult child, I'm also an alcoholic and a sexual addict, you know, and that's all I have to say. But it was a major uh, victory for me, and I was a little amazed to see that it didn't have much reaction on the people in my, uh, in my group. And when I look back on it, I realize that wasn't really because of them so much as it was because of me. You know, I had reached a level of acceptance with myself that I was willing to, you know, to, to go this step. You know, and it really didn't matter. What mattered was where I was with it. Uh, also, another thing that has been a challenge to me, and it came to me in a funny way relative to acceptance, uh, I was in a restaurant by myself one day having lunch. I was waiting for my, uh, this is maybe five, six years ago, I was waiting for my entree to arrive. And I was reading a newspaper, and it was the newspaper of the uh, Bhagwan, our Oregon's famous uh, spiritual leader from some years back. He had been, uh, 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 I guess, banished and sent back to India. But anyway, it was his newspaper, and I was reading it with great amusement and with joy. Uh, well, to give you an idea, one of the, I remember two things from it, one that struck me deeply and one that was merely humorous, but he was dedicating his latest book to all of humanity except for Ronald Reagan and Edwin Meese. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, so I laughed at that. That also puts it in the proper time frame. But then there was, an, there was an interview with him by some of his disciples, and he was talking about acceptance. And I was deeply struck by what he had to say about acceptance, because he, uh, uh, he said acceptance is a difficult uh, concept to talk about in the English language, because in the English language, we always attach reluctance to it. You know, we accept because we have no other choice. You know, we accept because there are no al other alternatives. And that struck me very deeply because that's how I kind of came into, uh, you know, my awareness uh, of my own sexual addiction. You know, I was backed into a corner. And he said beyond that, and this has stuck with me, that true acceptance is acceptance with joy. And uh, uh, I have remembered that ever since. Uh, it is something I would like to think I could achieve someday, you know, but I'm not there. <laughs> I still am at the point that uh, it's hard for me to say, you know, introduce myself as a grateful uh, uh, recovering sexaholic even, because I'm not always sure that I'm grateful about that. And I realize I've heard other people just talk about being a grateful sexaholic, and uh, uh, that's also tough. I wish I could say that that were true for me, but uh, it really isn't, not yet, not today. Um, anyway, I, uh, I guess I'm speaking mostly about acceptance, but I, um, I recently uh, uh, was in a hotel lobby looking at a display of uh, uh, artifacts, African tribal artifacts, and one of them was a, uh, a very simple but beautiful uh, bronze mask and it had a very uh, serious but kind of just a very I don't know how to describe it well a uh, almost a muted countenance to it just a very bland but serious countenance and I read the plate underneath and basically it said this was a tribal mask worn by elders when they judged and uh, it kind of struck me deeply and I thought that is a mask I don't want to wear um, and I've realized in this program that uh, uh, you know that my challenge is not to really is not to discriminate or judge it's to accept and I have trouble with that and I was helped in that regard uh, many years ago uh, hearing secondhand uh, what somebody else in this fellowship had said uh, in regard to a question about how do you handle situations at meetings that are wildly uh, inappropriate or out of control or just plain craziness. And uh, uh, this gentleman who's with us at this conference uh, had answered by saying, well, the first thing I do is, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because I didn't hear it live, but he said, the first thing I do uh, is I stop and I ask myself what it is that God would like me to hear that this person is saying. And that is, uh, was one of those that hurt when I heard it because I realized that one, you know, just zing right over my head. Anyway, the other thing that, uh, this number two on my list of, uh, uh, of principles that I struggle with is, uh, is willingness. Uh, when I first came to this program, uh, well, I came willingly. I walked in the door. <laughs> And I sat down and I did participate uh, at some level. Uh, my self-esteem uh, was not in very good shape. I was filled with shame. I was filled with fear. Uh, 
I was depressed. I didn't know what was coming next. I was just there because I really had no place else to go. Uh, and I guess at the time, if uh, I had been able to think about it, I would have thought that everything, you know, my self-esteem was in the, uh, uh, in the gutter and that my ego and self-will were down there with it. I have since learned uh, kind of painfully that that's, that's not true, you know, that I can have a terrible, terrible self-esteem, but my, my ego and my will are strong and alive, and that's the problem. Uh, that's a major problem. Uh, I, um, I find it in a lot of ways, I have a hard time relating some of this, but uh, in a meaningful way. Um, you know, I guess an example for me is, uh, uh, that's meaningful to me, something that I cherish in our steps is uh, the step 11, the, uh, uh, you know, Satra prayer and meditation uh, to, to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, seeking only for knowledge of his will, you know, for me and the power to carry that out. Uh, that is a perfect example of my difficulty with uh, uh, will. Uh, you know, my prayer all of my life, really, uh, uh, until being part of this program, has been, really, I've been praying for things. And I have justified that, even in this program, in the sense that as long as they're good, you know, it's okay. But again, that's my will. You know, that isn't God's will. You know, I treat God in that regard very much like he needs a kick in the pants and a reminder to, you know, to know what needs to be done. And it is very, uh, it's painful and it's difficult for me to try to get beyond that. Uh, the other thing that I um, wanted to talk about in terms of principles is uh, responsibility. And this has been a hard one uh, for me to even think about. You know, I've talked about acceptance and willingness because I've seen them as my two challenges. Uh, responsibility, I don't like to see. Um, when I was a little boy, uh, you know, you could call me all sorts of names and it, it didn't bother me. But, you know, call me irresponsible and, oh boy, you know, that really stung. That was painful. You could call me anything else because that was something I heard in my home a little bit. And it's something that, uh, you know, I was determined I was not going to be. And, of course, uh, you can hear the willfulness in this. Uh, uh. But I basically, I tried to be responsible most of my life uh, uh, out of, I tried to do it superficially in terms of things and, you know, simple responsibilities. And I did it out of fear. You know, I did it because I was afraid if I didn't do it, you wouldn't like me. You know, you wouldn't stick around. You might discover out, you know, the truth about me or whatever. Uh, I didn't do it out of any uh, uh, any deeper level than that. And I, uh, I find uh, uh, a great deal of difficulty in terms of being responsible for even simple things, my feelings. You know, I, uh, I am not a person who has been real successful or real good at expressing feelings, dealing with feelings, being honest with feelings. You know, that's been a major uh, problem for me. But even as recently as three or four years ago, I, I can tell this little story down at the state hospital where uh, uh, I was trying to get into our Wednesday night essay meeting in Ward 41C, and uh, I was with a gentleman who had just graduated from that program. 
you know, he had just basically gotten out of, he'd been in prison and he'd gotten out of this uh, treatment program and he was coming back to go to the meeting with me. And this was a, uh, uh, well anyway, <clears throat> the state hospital had undergone some serious security problems and we showed up this Wednesday and all of a sudden the whole procedures were different and we couldn't get in the door, you know. And we were kind of, there was an official person there to tell us, nope, they couldn't let us in, we had to do this and this and this and that. Anyway, as we walked across the parking lot trying to comply with these new regulations, uh, my first comment to this guy was, well, that pissed me off, you know. <laughs> that, made, that made me angry, you know, grumble, grumble. And his comment back to me was, yeah, I felt some anger too. And it struck me. Here I was blaming my anger on the situation and the institution, and here this man was accepting the anger as his. You know, a small distinction perhaps, but you know, an important one, and typical of me uh, not wanting to be responsible for Scott. You know, I would prefer to you know push it off on something else, on somebody, on a situation, you know, whatever. It's justified, it's understandable, it's oh, because of this, you know. I have all sorts of reasons. Am I short? Getting close? Okay, I'm done. <laughs> 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 I want to uh, uh, just finish up by, um, on the responsibility thing by saying that I, uh, that was three or four years ago. Uh, last weekend I had trouble with responsibility again in a minor and uh, uh, seemingly superficial way, but I was uh, going out to move my mailbox from one side of the driveway to the other, uh, and I dug a hole and went in, and I was uh, superficially again responsible because I did call and report it when I realized what cable it was and what I'd done. But <laughs> in talking to my wife and to my neighbors and to the cable company, I was full of excuses, you know. Yes, I did it, but there was a lot of rock and concrete in this hole. I didn't realize I was doing it. And gee, there was a truck out to mark all the uh, cable locations for uh, a fence that was being put in next door, and this one wasn't marked, you know. In other words, it wasn't my fault. Yeah. So that's a big challenge for me in this program is to see that it is my fault. You know, it is my responsibility. Anyway, thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. When I think of our uh, next speaker, I I met him some months ago, and and I think of what a what an incredible inspiration. Um, some of my most difficult toughest times and my times of most crazy acting out in my disease before sobriety was when I traveled and, and in, uh, in, in unknown places I was uh, kind of unknown. I could isolate and be, uh, nobody knew who I was so I could come and go freely from the places that, you know, we all know about. And, and, uh, and it strikes me that, uh, that, uh, uh Mike uh, is an incredible inspiration in in uh, gaining sobriety and uh, in the life that he lives uh, behind the wheel of a big rig and and in places around the country all the time traveling and and yet stays in touch with us and the fellowship and uh, 
and I'm in, I'm certainly inspired by that. And uh, I want to introduce uh, Mike Kay, Glendale, Oregon. Thank you. My name's Mike. I'm a sexaholic. Hi, Mike. And uh, I wish I was in that truck right now. <laughs> uh, boy, I saw the deal here, and Scott and Tom and. Uh, there's a couple of bright guys, and how am I going to fit in here, you know? And uh, Discovering the principles, uh, I've never been one to read much, or uh, I have a hard time expressing myself writing, and I thought I'm going to have to do some study here, you know? So first thing I did, I got my dictionary out and looked up the word principle, and uh, I knew I was in trouble because it didn't help me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I got the pamphlet Mary had there, and I got more confused. <laughs> so I was driving in my truck, and uh, I just listened to a lot of radio on the truck, you know, to keep out of my head. And uh, I'm not a religious person. Uh, I found a higher... I've been in 12-step programs for 18 years, and it uh, probably doesn't show, but you think I know the, how, what principle meant, but... Uh, there with the train of thought. Anyway, I was listening to this program, and uh, Mel Gibson told the story of David and Goliath. And uh, that isn't it either. Geez, then it's about the sheep herder that faces this big guy. And uh, they were going to put him armor on him and give him a spear and, and he said no I'm a sheep herder I'm just going to take my staff and wear my sheep herder's clothing and the light went off you know and I thought I don't have to study on this uh, and then I realized that to me principles means the teachings of the program and I've learned a lot in the last year and so I'm just going to tell you what I've learned uh, I came into this program in 1987 and uh, you all met my charming wife last night and uh, what she didn't tell you was, when I came in off the road uh, that day, she gave me the phone number <laughs> and uh, that she got from uh, SA in LA. And I called that number because we had both known there was something wrong with me. Uh, I didn't know what it was. You know, I knew I had, it was like runaway hormones. That's how I described it. I knew I was a bad person. Uh, I had never been able to be faithful in my marriage. Uh, since before kindergarten, I had been acting out sexually. Uh, and I, it wasn't in a healthy way. You know, it was with animals and things like that. So I, I grew up thinking I was real strange. And uh, it just, I, have, I don't even want to go into a lot of it, but it was, it was just, I, I couldn't accept myself. And then in marriage, it didn't get any better. Uh, compulsive masturbation, uh, use of pornography. Uh, my first sexual experience with another human being was with another man. Uh, I was 17, and that got me. Uh, and I was engaged at the time uh, to a beautiful girl, and I couldn't understand why that happened. Uh, and then I got into that marriage, and uh, we were both dysfunctional. That one lasted about three and a half years. And then I met my wife, Jerry, and we've been together uh, a long time, close to 30 years. Uh, and uh, this addiction just ran rampant. Anyway, 
make a long story short, she gave me the phone number and I called L.A. And my God, I got a hold of a guy down there who told me who he was. And that's the first time in my life I'd ever heard anybody talk about what was wrong with me. And it was just an instant uh, bond and trust. And uh, it was a short time later, uh, I got a contact from a gal in Portland. And she told me where there was a meeting and I went to a meeting. And... Uh, my very first meeting, it was on my biological birthday, and uh, I thought, oh boy, oh, this will be easy to remember, you know. And uh, I went to that meeting, and there was only about four or five people there, but they went around the room and shared the nature of their addiction. And I, they, I don't know where I was in that. I think I was probably the last guy they called on or, or it came around to me, but I started to cry. And uh, they said, do you feel like talking? And I said, yeah, I'm crying because I'm so relieved I relate. I thought, if I didn't fit in here, I'm screwed, you know. <laughs> and uh, I just never heard people talk about that. And, uh, but I couldn't tell them all of mine because I just told them what I thought they could accept, you know. And uh, all of my acting out. And, uh, but I was ready, so I thought. And I went to meetings and... Uh, about 25 days later, I lost my sobriety, and uh, I went back, and I stayed sober for five years, and uh, I was doing it my way. I had bottomed out on acting out, uh, but I hadn't bottomed out on lust, and I didn't know that. I didn't even know lust was a problem. I thought acting out was a problem, and I, did, I read in the book, and it said we do things that, uh, within our power. I quit going to adult bookstores, I quit going to uh, rest areas, uh, I quit buying pornography, I quit masturbating, uh, I quit doing anything that I could do to fill, feed the illness. Uh, at the time I was hauling produce uh, from Southern California to Portland, so I'd hit meetings in Riverside in LA, I'd hit meetings up here. I was hitting a couple meetings a week and uh, I was doing real good. I didn't have a sponsor. Well, I did kind of. This is where you know, I got a head like a baked potato. And uh, I'm going to do it the way I think it should be done. And uh, so I contacted a fellow here, and he mentioned the fact that when he sponsors people, he likes them to call them a certain amount of times a week and go to so many meetings. And I thought, well, that's all right. I just won't ask him to be my sponsor, but I'll just call him when I need him, you know. And that's what I did. And then being a truck driver, it was like I was really unaccountable. Because if I was in L.A., nobody here, they just figure I'm hauling produce, you know. Nobody knew. They didn't miss me if I wasn't at a meeting, you know. And boy, my disease like that. But the only problem with that, I was going broke financially, so I had to change jobs. And I started going to the East Coast. And uh, meetings got further and further apart. I didn't make phone calls. And uh, boy, the lust was just kicking my butt, you know, and uh, I tried smoking dope. I thought, well, I'll smoke, do well, I, not just in SA, I smoked dope for 30 years before I got here, but I thought, I'll get so stoned that nobody would want to act out with me, you know, <laughs> and, and that worked, uh, <laughs> and the desire to act out with myself, it wasn't even an option, you know what I mean? It was not an option. And I need to say that the behavior that got me here was anonymous sex in rest areas and adult bookstores. 
And to make a long story short, five years later, I wound up in a rest area acting out, and I lost my sobriety. And uh, that's a lie. Wait a minute. Before that, I had been lusting for five days straight. I couldn't stop it, and it was triggered by my wife going to a retreat in Vancouver. I got so insecure and so afraid that she was going to fall in love with one of you guys up here at this retreat, and I couldn't come, <laughs> that I just went nuts. And the only thing that killed that pain was the lust. And I was lusting. And I used to lust in that first five years, but I'd ask God to take it, and he'd take it, you know, and I'd get scared. when I, Oh, you better not do this, you know. And this time he didn't take it. And about, it was several days later, uh, I was in Montreal going through a tunnel. I'll never forget it. And there was a car alongside of me, and I didn't pay attention. And then I just looked over like that, and there were some people acting out in that car. And wham, I had an uh, orgasm right there without touching myself. And I thought, geez, this thing's got a mind of its own. It doesn't even need me anymore, you know. And <clears throat> I wrestled with, should I change my sobriety or not, you know. And, and uh, I decided to change my sobriety. Uh, and uh, the next thing my disease says, well, you might as well get your money's worth. You know, what you, geez, you got nothing to lose now. And uh, so that's what happened. And then I went out and then I did masturbate. And uh, I'd get a couple of months sobriety and I'd lose it. I'd get three months, four months and lose it. And uh, then it was a year later of acting out and couldn't get sober that year for any length of time. I wound up back in the rest area losing my sobriety, and the next day uh, I read my book. Well, I, yeah, I read my book. I 12-stepped the guy in the rest area for SA. And uh, that was, I knew I was a goner then, boy. So, uh, so I, uh, I read my book the next day, and I felt good, and I called Harry. I said, Harry, I'm reading the book, and I feel good. He said, it doesn't count. You just lost your sobriety, and that's normal to feel good, you know. You'd never want to do it again and all that. But here's, uh, here's the turning point for me, is for the first time in my life, I wanted to work a program. I didn't the first five years. I didn't want to do it. You know, my wife came home from Vancouver, and she knew I was battling lust, and she said, boy, there was a, a member up there who said he, he got so sick of lust, he finally just gets on his knees every morning and asks God, to relieve him of his lust for that day. And I remember thinking, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to do, and this is during the period I couldn't get sober for that year. I thought, I don't want to do that. Well, that next morning after I lost my sobriety, I called Harry, and I did want to do it. And the thing I appreciate about Harry is Harry allowed me the dignity to bottom out for myself. He never told me what to do. He just loved me through all those slips. You know what I mean? He was there for me. Uh, that's all I can say. He did not run anything down my throat. I think he knew that he couldn't, you know. Uh, if he told me to do something, I'd probably just do the opposite. That's just the way I am. But I had a strong desire then, and so he told me what he did, you know. He made a list of things to do every day. So I made a list of things that I would do every day. And those things were I would get on my knees every morning and ask God to keep me sober that day. And I would thank him for yesterday. Uh, I would read some of my white book, or I have uh, Answers of the Heart, and I would read a page out of that and some of my white book every day. 
I would say the seventh step prayer every day. I'd say the third step prayer every day. I would call Harry. And one of my prayers was, God, give me the desire to work this program S.A.'s way and Harry's way. Uh, because I want to be like Harry. You know, that's what I wanted. And uh, boy, it was about three days later, I called Harry. I said, God, Harry, anybody could stay sober doing it this way. You know, <laughs> But to me, it was like it almost took the fun out of it, you know? It was, uh, and Harry's answer to me was, some can't, you know? And uh, then my next question the next day, I said, well, Harry, how long do I have to keep calling you like this, you know? And uh, he said, don't stop now. He said, it's still working, you know? And I thought I was home free, you know? And uh, I don't know when it happened, but it happened four times uh, in the last year, lust came up and kicked my butt. And it hit me stronger than it ever did when I lost my sobriety. But I put a cellular phone in my truck, and right, right when the lust was just at its strongest, I called Harry. I didn't want to, but it said to do that, so I did it. And uh, it stopped. You know, it might come back 15 minutes later. I remember one time, it's 40-some, well, I live 100 miles, 200 miles south of here, but it, it hit south. I was just trying to get home. I had about 80 miles to go, and I remember I called Harry three times, you know, in that 80 miles. But I made it. Uh, and then it happened again. And then the last time I had a lust attack, I was about eight months sober. And... Uh, Lust was kicking my butt, and I said, God, I don't want to lust, you know. And, but when I'd pray to God, it wouldn't go away, you know what I mean? It was just, how long can you pray, you know? It was, it was like that, and I, and I remember thinking, is this how it's going to be? Is this what everybody's doing? Because this sucks, you know? And it was like, uh, I was praying to God, and then I thought, no, that's BS, man. It's not that I don't want to lust. I want to lust so hard that I'll have another orgasm, but I won't have to change my sobriety date. And when I told him that, it quit, you know. And I think what I did is I got honest with him, you know. I was telling him what I really wanted to do. I wanted to act out one more time and not take responsibility for it, you know. And uh, the lust quit. And uh, I went to a meeting the next night in Portland, and after that meeting, I, I went uh, eight and was going to go to go to bed in my truck, and the lust hit real bad. And I laid down and went to bed, and wham! I had an ejaculation, and that messed me up because I thought, now what do I do? Change my sobriety again, and all this stuff. And a couple weeks later, I was up in New York, and I was all messed up over that. And I called Harry and told him, and he said, Mike, what's the matter? Is your head telling you that you're not working the perfect program? And I said, Yeah. He said, well, the next time that thought comes, just ask God to take it, you know. And I went out to my truck, and, and I was sitting in my truck, and I, I just started to say, I'm not perfect. And I started to cry. And uh, I've been trying to cry for 50 years, you know. So I thought, I'll say that again. So I said it again, and, <laughs> and the tears just started to come. And then I said, by whose standards? And it was by my own standards. I'm not perfect by my standards. And uh, my fear was that if I had to change my sobriety date, 
I knew that my disease would make me go out and get my money's worth again, you know. And I didn't want to do that. And the next thing I said is, I said, God, I never, and I, I hadn't been lust in this trip. I'd been out for a week and hadn't had any lust. But it just was God's time. And I said, God, I never, ever want to do the things I have to do to satisfy this craving. I never want to go back out there. And then I said, God, don't ever make me go back out there. And God, I got a warm feeling right here, right in my chest. And uh, I knew what happened. All of a sudden, it just, it was gone. And, and that was, I bottomed out on lust, you know. Uh, I haven't had a lust attack since. I've had, it's all out there ready to come in, but I don't want to touch it. It's finally, uh, God has intervened in my program. I've been in SA, uh, I think it's eight, it feels like eight, maybe it's seven, since 1987. But it's just been in, since April 13th that uh, my higher power came in. And the main principle that I'm aware of now is that I'm powerless. I was powerless all that time and didn't know it. And if I'm powerless, there's no need to come to a meeting and feel like shit because I couldn't stay sober. You know, I'm powerless. I'm powerless even to get a desire to work a program. It's got to come from God, you know. And the only reason I got that desire is the pain of acting out. Uh, I've, he I've heard, I buy a lot of tapes, uh, essay tapes. I hear a lot of talk about uh, maybe there's something wrong with the program because guys can't stay sober. When I heard that, I thought, wow, they're talking about me. I'm one of those guys. I'm ruining the reputation of SA. I'm just on my own timetable. You know, I'm on God's timetable. Uh, then I thought, well, what's the use of working all these steps if God hasn't stepped into your life yet? You're wasting your time. And the amazing thing about working a program, I started reading a book. <laughs> and then, because uh, I don't like to read, but now I have to read it every day, you know. And uh, I want to read it every day. I've got to be honest. I didn't get on my knees this morning. This is the morning I should have, too. I didn't get on my knees this morning. I didn't read my book, and I haven't called Harry. You know? <laughs> but I'm getting better, you know. But it's like uh, there's nothing wrong with this program. The book is divine. Every time I slipped, I found myself in the book. Now that I'm reading the book, I realize, and I read this the other day, and it made so much sense to me, I was preparing myself to have a spiritual awakening this last year by working a program. You know what I mean? It's like uh, I came from a life to where there was no God. Uh, I was taught that if I put my head down and hit that wall hard enough, eventually I'll go through it. Uh, that's not powerlessness. You know, that's not acceptance. And uh, it's just it's taken me a long time because this is totally different from the way I was raised. You know, I wasn't raised to uh, let go and let God uh, I wasn't raised to do the things I'm doing today, you know. I don't know how long I've been talking here. Hope it's long enough. But uh, <clears throat> I had a, I'm going to say one more thing. I had a son come up to my house the other night, and he was uh, drunk and drugged out. And uh, he came up to me, and uh, he didn't come in the house. And I went out in the yard, and I said, how you doing? He said, I came to kick your butt. And, uh, God, a year ago I'd have said, well, take your best shot, punk, you know. And this time I hugged him. And I said, let's talk about it, you know. I said, why would you want to kick my butt? He said, I don't know. I thought it might make me feel better. You know? 
But we talked, and we talked about uh, his sexual acting out when he was four years old. And it's haunting him. And I told him who I was for the first time, and we hugged. And he's been clean ever since that night, you know. And we've had some good talks since. And it's like I feel real bad because when he was 12 years old, I hopped in a truck and took off. I abandoned him. And I wasn't there for any of my kids during all their growing up years. My oldest kid's like 32, and my youngest is 24. And I was either acting out sexually or obsessed with her mother's drinking or on drugs myself. So I wasn't there for them. But the beautiful thing is I'm there for them now. You know, and, and with, with my higher power coming in and opening up my heart, it's like uh, I don't have all the hate left. I had a lot of anger. You know what I mean? I hated AA members, you know. And uh, I did a fourth step on that and turned it over to God every morning. And I went back to an AA meeting my wife, and I didn't even get in the door, and I was pissed off, you know. And I thought, this ain't working. But when my higher power came in and did this to me, I love them all. And I just, if it wasn't for them, I realized I wouldn't have a program. You know, it's just all that hate went out. And thank God that left before my son came up to the house the other night. You know, and it's just, uh, there's hope. Uh, I don't know, I just feel uh, principles of the program. It's like, I'm going to learn them through hard knocks for me. It's not what I'm reading in a book, really. It's, I have to learn it by experience. And I'm learning it. And I was able to share it with my son the other night. And instead of pushing him away, I, I brought him into my life, you know. And I just can't tell you how that feels. Uh, I have faith he'll make it, you know. Because if I can make it, he can make it. And uh, with that, I'm going to shut up. Thanks a lot. Inspired. Thanks, Mike. Uh, we've got a few minutes. Uh, if anyone would like to uh, share or or comment on the, the topic of the of the principles, uh, can uh, take four or five here. Line up. Anybody would like to share? Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm Bob Alcoholic Sexaholic. And I'm absolutely, totally, completely powerless over lust in any form, however indirect. And uh, I need everyone present, and my God, to be sober for even one minute. I don't know exactly what I, I need to say, but I know that I had to get up and talk. Uh, I'm really sort of a critical point. I've uh, come back to to essay over about a year and a half ago, and I've been it's like the one or two monther. But then, like you know, the new sobriety date and going out and getting the money's worth, and I've really have a pattern of doing that and I, I uh, relapsed after about two months just as, you know, about a week ago and it, it just has to end right now uh, I I have no other choice but to stop and uh, this is absolute and complete with me uh, what has worked you know I, I don't want to deal with so much of what I was doing wrong but what what I was doing right in my periods being dry at least isn't it you know not ha- laying hands on myself at any time when I'm in bed 
and it's it's like not not opening the bottle uh, for the alcohol. Uh, and I, I the main thing is not my message here, but I, I just needed to be here and get out and talk. And uh, also, I'm having to get very honest with uh, trains of thought, a lot of resentments and fantasy I have. You know, it's not lust about a woman, say, but you know, and, and it's a, lo- a lot of anger down there, and uh, it's being out of touch with reality. My God, so I'm having, I have to uh, let go of these trains of thought, and I'm very grateful for everyone who's here. And I'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye bye. My name is Harry. Hi, <laughs> Harry. <laughs> I'm a sexaholic. And uh, uh, I've been there for Mike, it's true. And I, I just wanted to say that I got over in, in January 16 months of extreme depression. And I might have gone out the bottom if it wasn't for Mike's calls every day. I stayed sober. And I did my program things, but that's all. Then, thanks, Mike, for letting me help others. My name's Chuck. I'm a recovering sexaholic from Roseburg, Oregon. And uh, Mary brought up something that uh, I had been thinking about and I had done some things about and discovered how wrong I was. And uh, that is trying to bring our principles to other people. And uh, I was noting that we are now starting to see AA advertising on television and they're almost 60 years old (laughs) so I think we're a ways down the road from that type of advertisement but a great many of us in here uh, very few addicts have one addiction so those of us that are in other programs are in a position to uh, maybe, just maybe, be able to help other people. But be very careful because I was in another program and feeling very benevolent and feeling like I should carry the message to all of those people in this other program. And it was a 12-step program too. Next thing I found out was that I was called into a private meeting And some of the people in this group that I was in had expressed some fears because of the fact that I was a sexaholic and they didn't know what my problem was. So we have to be very careful in that respect of uh, how we carry the message to other people. I was taking things and putting them into my computer out of the book and... uh, 
uh, stuff from Patrick Carnes and stuff from uh, a great many people who are very knowledgeable in the area of sexual addiction and uh, you know, me being the, the pontificator and uh, carrying my message to all of these people and uh, uh, I can all I can say is that we we have to be very careful. I I I always want to carry the message to everybody. Uh, sometimes, uh, in so doing, we scare the people away. And uh, I think the main thing is if uh, in the course of our other uh, our other twelve-step groups, of which there are many. Uh, those of us here that do participate in those groups uh, can be able to carry that message and I know we're seeing our particular group in Roseburg that for a long long time has only consisted of maybe four or five members and we now have eight very steady members and that's a, a great feeling and uh, I just wanted to carry that message to everybody and to thank all of you for being here. Thank you. Howdy, I'm Kurt, grateful recovering sexaholic from Oklahoma City. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Kurt. Um, you know, I was um, here and, um, you know, I'm not very familiar with panel meetings. I've only seen them in NA. Um, but um, I think this is the first time I've seen it in, in SA meetings, so that's great. Um, but what, what about, um, do I have anything to say on um, discovering the principles? And um, when Harry came up talking about his depression, that reminded me of sort of my cycle in recovery. Um, when I first got sober, I'd go through about six months of um, depression and six, six months of happy, joyous, and free, six months of depression, etc., etc. And um, I recently came off of um, uh, about a year ago now, a year and a half ago now, um, a depression that lasted for, um, a, oh, maybe a couple of years. This is right around the time I got married. I, I did do dating and, and sober dating and, and sobriety and even got married in sobriety. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it is possible. But, uh, you know, that dating, by the way, was, you know, I didn't, didn't even attempt that until after I followed the suggestion of having at least a year of sobriety before I started. <laughs> I mean, even AA suggests that. So, but um, what, what, what the principle I discovered um, through those, that, this last episode of depression was that I was um, not concentrating as much on my program. Um, in, chapter, in the chapter of, um, let's see, I forget which chapter, um, but it's um, titled um, uh, Working with Others in the AA Big Book. You know, it says the, um, the, um, uh, when all other methods fail, uh, working with other sexaholics is the um, best insurance against another slip. Um, paraphrased, um, and um, that's that's really what you know. It turned it around. That's what reminded me what was was lacking in my program. I I had um, forgotten that you know part of this this program is is the working with others, and I um, threw myself back into it more. Um, I uh, uh, my wife was um, more understanding about my need to work. Um, harder in the program at this time 
she's working her program much better. And I'm sorry, I didn't have, have that excuse. And uh, so, um, you know, I just want to uh, you know, remind you that service, service to the SA program is um, a vital part to our recovery. Um, and um, it works, you know, for me when, uh, you know, when all other um, methods fail. And so, with that, I thank you all. One more. Thanks very much. I'm Mike from uh, Vancouver, BC, although I've got an Australian accent. Hi, Mike. I just wanted to make a comment about something that Mike had said that triggered something uh, that, I, that I do want to say. I've got two boys, 18 and almost 17. They're both getting into drugs right now, pot primarily, a little bit of Sid. Uh, the older one wants to smoke up with Dad because he thinks that would be just such a wonderful thing to smoke up with Dad. And you know what? I'd really like to smoke up with him too, but I haven't had a joint for over 12 years. I know that I would be able to get a little closer to him in terms of his mindset if we were both stoned so that he could fully understand what I'm like in my sexaholism because he's the same as I am and I'm responsible for it. This step 12 where we, you know, have to, uh, we have this having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps and trying to practice everything in our lives and taking the message to others, it seems to me that that's what we all want to do but we want to do it with everyone else other than, our, other than our family. Because for me, and I can only speak for myself, I screwed my family up royally. And I want to take that message to my kids rather than take it to everyone else. Because everyone else is going to be more receptive to listening to what I have to say. And I can feel more comfortable taking the message to someone who, who, who has a different uh, bloodline than I do. So I'm really working as hard as I possibly can on my program, even though it's for me, but I know the kids are beginning to see some changes just as their, their mother is now, although we've been divorced for 12 years and they've been living with her for that long. But so that's just something that Mike sort of got me going. I hadn't really thought of it this way before. But that's the step 12 that I've got to do for my kids. I've got to break that chain so that their kids don't get into the same problems that I've helped them get into. Thank you. Um, before we close, uh, Mary wanted to remind uh, everybody these are T-shirts are available in the... Uh, room where the tapes are available, where the Glen K tapes are available. And uh, let's uh, close in the conventional way. Join hands, please. silence for the addicts here in this room and those addicts out there on the street who have 
yet to find our way of life. Who keeps us sober? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Yes. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.